When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Think to Freedom podcast, where we inspire individuals to use their minds to achieve greatness. We sit down with other entrepreneurs and professionals to give insight on business and personal development. This podcast is sponsored by Red Barn Cajun Crawfish. Red Barn is home to the best tasting seafood, specializing in crawfish, shrimp, and crab. Feel free to visit us online at www.redbarncajuncrawfish.com. Red Barn, we season the meat you eat, not the shells you throw at your feet. Yes! Now here's your host, y'all heard? Darius Spells. Hello world, what's going on? You're truly Darius Spells here. We live inside the Think the Freedom podcast, man, you know? Yo. And I got my brother, my partner, Mr. Demetrius Norman, in the building with me today. What's up with it, brother? What's good, man? Blessed to be here. Yeah, we in the building. Yo. It took it, us a minute. It's good to be here. It took us a minute, but, but you we know, here. everything happened in this season. Exactly. You know what I mean? So I'm just I'm just excited to be here. I'm excited to be here with you, with our homie here, you know what I'm saying? Like I'm I'm excited to be doing things that are black owned. Yeah. With other entities that are black owned. All of us got our Master paperwork. Studios. Yeah. Entities. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it mean it mean a lot to me, you know what I'm saying? I feel like we sit here in Shreveport where we come up out out the mud, like out the gutter. Yeah. Like, you know, playing four square, wishing like we would have this type of stuff one day and now we doing it. In real and, life. Yeah, we doing it and then we sharing it with each other. We building a way for like our little homies, our, our family members. You know what I'm saying? They ain't even got to know the struggle like how what we saw back in the day. Exactly. So it's it's, it's beautiful. Yes, I definitely appreciate you for coming in here, man, and sharing some gems, sharing some knowledge, man, with the people today. So, brother, before we jump into this conversation, because we got a lot to talk about. A lot to talk about, man, across all spectrums. Look at my phone ring. It's live and direct. I got to let them know. i hit them back in a minute. But, brother, let the people know who you are and what you do, brother. Cool. Well, you know, I'm Demetrius Norman. Everybody just call me Meaches. <laughs> and I and I, I do too much at times, to be honest with you. <laughs> I do too much. That's what I do. <laughs> no, but uh, I always like to think of myself as like a father and a community advocate first. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, I've been blessed to, like, work in different career fields. I had a lot of jobs since I was 16 years old. Working at KFC on the Pines Road while I was going to Huntington. Shout out Pines Road. Right. HHS in the building. Alumni exactly. in the building with old Huntington. First uh, black STEM magnet in the city, but we'll get to that. Yeah. But yeah, uh, you know, it was just uh, it was just different for me. You know what I'm saying? At that time, it was a different social class at Huntington. It was a lot more spoon-fed, mixed with a few hood. I was one of the hood ones that kind of snuck in at the time. Gotcha. But you know what I'm saying? I came from a... I, I come from a little bit of a mixed background because I come from a two-parent household. Dad is a Vietnam vet. Mama's a business owner. But, uh, you know what I'm saying? I don't talk about it a lot, but my mom was uh, diagnosed with mental health, mental illness, you know what I'm saying? When I was, um, like, maybe, I want to say maybe two or three, my mama started, like, you know what I'm saying, getting treatment and stuff. It was one of those past eight things we didn't really talk about, but I watched my mama go from being, like, a black female business owner, entrepreneur, one of the first in the city, 
Um, you know what I mean? And like kind of decline and deteriorate when she had to close her business down. Mm-hmm. It's called Sadiva Sadiva Cosmetics. It's Cedric Demetrius and Versa. So she like put our names together. Gotcha. They made like this acronym. So I mean I'm learning math. I'm learning how to read like from in the in my mama's shop across the street from the street poor son or Joella. I'm like helping her run the cash register and like seeing how she run a business. And that's my first vision of a black woman. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? They kinda stayed with me throughout life where I kept meeting like these different powerful black women, you know, at different levels of life that kind of remind me of her. Gotcha. So she kind of set the pace for me. And my dad was real strict, you know, he's Vietnam vet, so he was more action than talk. Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? I'd be running around on the block, getting in trouble, whatever. He's like, man, I'm going to take you out to the country, make a man out, go out there, and I got to feed cows and oh, yeah. slop hogs. And I, so I kind of got... A little bit of everything. Yeah, I kind of got a little bit of everything. You know what I'm saying? I had cousins and like kin folk that kind of had a little money, and I go spend the night with them sometime. And they got like the fancy, like fine china, and you know what I'm all saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the same yeah. time, we in my household, we had to go through like bankruptcy and all that. So I watched my house kind of fall from being like the hustables to kind of hood mm-hmm. place. And that's kind of how Queensboro was. My parents integrated Queensboro when it was like no black people over there. So they was like doing it big at the time. It was like moving to the white folks' neighborhood. What year? What around, What year with this one? I think that was like the seventies. You know, what I'm saying my dad just got back from Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Got that? What was? He got that? Uh, that that Chevelle? One of them Chevelles that just came Ooh, out. You know, that, got a '67. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, I think when they got the '69, when then he got like uh, he got the motor transmission put up. Oh yeah. So he had got it new. Got it. Took a GI Bill. They moved to Queenborough. So they like balling at this time. So it's like when it shifts into us kind of being in more of like a like a like a hood type element um i think what i thought we were going through alone a lot of black families i think that tried to integrate to white communities like queensboro were going through gotcha. a lot of people didn't know there was an all white neighborhood they didn't like black people moving over there fat park was all white yeah so, i remember i remember hearing it. yeah so the way it became a hood was from some called white flight it's like when you start moving in like a southern southern hills dealing with it now Mm-hmm. You know, you start moving to a white neighborhood, black people start getting their money, getting degrees, going to the military, coming up. You move to this good neighborhood that you think is better. And then you don't realize your white neighbors don't want you there or you quickly realize. And, you know, they go from being very ugly towards you to just moving out, you know, boom, 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 one at a time. Gotcha. They said the saying with red line and color, there goes the neighborhood. Gotcha. So, like, when you move into an affluent community where you like the only black family or whatever, you know, they'll make sayings like, there goes a the neighborhood. And mm-hmm. yeah. And so what really happens is like what's going on right now with redistricting. So, you know, we um I run a nonprofit for those that don't know, Northwest Louisiana Makerspace. We were one of the only nonprofits that stepped up and actually paid for the census outreach in Shreveport last year. Gotcha. Like before the pandemic was even going on, we teamed up with Candace Batiste, Power Coalition, and we was at it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We teamed up with Black Voters Matter, Amari. Like, we was boost to the ground. We got to get black communities counted. Because what happens when white flight happens, and the reason why white people don't like to live in the same neighborhood with black people is because what happens is, let's say, like, when we talk about schools, streets getting fixed, police response, mm-hmm. when we talk about how they don't do anything for black communities, yeah, you can't really call it racism if only black people live there. Mm. Even though it's obvious structural racism, it doesn't look like racism. It looked like we tearing our own stuff up. It looked like we don't want nothing for ourselves. 
But the reality is the reason white people move out in desert neighborhoods when black people move in is because um, when the census comes around, mm-hmm. they count where everybody at. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That's the what happens the year after the census, there's something called redistricting. Gotcha. So right now we're redrawing the voting lines. Gotcha. Your city council, school board, commission, you know what I'm saying? Like uh, your state representative, your congressional seats uh, are being redrawn right now. Gotcha. And white people that kind of had an upper hand with our state representatives, people with money, they will, they will influence them to draw those lines in a way where the black communities have a weaker vote mm. or have less voting power. Okay. And then the white communities end up getting, uh, you know, piled into bigger voting districts. So that's why when you go look at like any, um, any voting district, whether you're talking about school board, city council commission, what you're going to see is a racialized district where there's the white districts have a white representative and they're majority white. And then there just happens to be these districts that only include black neighborhoods that are majority black. And then um, you may get a black representative mm-hmm. out of their representation. So you got like black representative, black district, white representative, white district, white people usually have the upper hand because of how they draw these maps Gotcha. to where, okay, you know, it, we think it's six and six, but white people really kind of have control of this other seventh district. And so it's usually going to be tilted in the favor of that white population. It usually mirrors the population. It's harder to do when Shreveport shifts into a population that it is now, where it's like majority African-American, kind of like New Orleans. Gotcha. New Orleans became majority black, and then, boom, now they get, they one of the only cities, in, they one of the only areas in Louisiana that have a black congressman, Right. They got a black mayor. They got gotcha. black representative. Right. It mirrors their population because they got control of the voter numbers. It's harder to gerrymander their numbers in the New Orleans area because it's it's such a heavy percentage black. Yeah, that's, that's why doing like particular races in New Orleans is a major hub. That's, yeah. yeah yes, I mean, New Orleans, New Orleans is the closest thing we got to Atlanta here in Louisiana. True. You know what I mean? Like yeah. where, I mean, they had their problems just like we have. They got crime. They got... Problems bringing people together sometimes, but they they work through that. They still love New Orleans. They still do for self. So I mean, um, you know, and there's some more stories similar to the one my family experienced in Queensboro. Like I say, the reason Queensboro looked like it looked now is because of political gerrymandering, like I'm describing. Gotcha. With the redistricting process, they stopped supporting the schools in Queensboro. Police stopped responding, having the same response time in Queensboro. You heard when Councilman Green was talking about before he was getting on our last, our former chief of police, when he was talking about why is it y'all show up so lightning fast on Lion Avenue when somebody in one of these fancy stores on Lion Avenue calls police, you got the whole squad there, lieutenant, <laughs> you know what I mean, chief, everybody there, you know, for somebody walking out of a store with something. Gotcha. But if you have a whole shootout in Queensboro, Cedar Grove, Moortown, you, you know what I'm saying? They still be letting out rounds about 15, 20 minutes later. No police in sight. Gotcha. You got a different response time. True. So the response time in white neighborhood is, I mean, that's going to be statistically lower than in a black community. And so you're going to have more opportunity, more potential for crime. It's not that you have more crime. is that it's allowed more. Uh, I understand. True. It's allowed more in a black neighborhood. You pretty much got to get you a piece and police yourself. 
in a black neighborhood, which is why we tend to have so many people want to strap up. You have to. It's, it's crazy this sound. You have to have you have to protect yourself around these pieces. You you do. You do, you do. But I think it's some other things that can help because I look at things in those neighborhoods where it's like 0%, you know, neighborhood watch programs. I feel like cameras, I feel like I feel like us putting up our own private cameras. I feel like us setting up uh, neighborhood watch programs mm-hmm. and actually having people on call, citizens ready to, like, call the laws and tracking the response time and taking it to the mayor and taking it to the council meeting when those response times are low. Actually documenting the interaction with the yeah. officers, yeah. taking down badge them. I feel like all this is way more effective than just us getting guns and policing ourselves because that's how you got crips. That's how you got bloods. True. Was us policing ourselves. True. But when we do it, you know what I'm saying? Now you and the people trying to break into your house, y'all go to jail together because we're going, you know what I'm saying? We don't have control of that legal system, which again, it's also gerrymandered. You don't get self-defense. You don't get... Uh, what is it? Um, the other one from Self Defense with Trayvon. Uh, um, I don't remember the name of that. Yeah, where well, you don't have no duty to retreat. Stand your ground. Stand your ground. I I never seen a black person get stand your ground, Louisiana. I haven't heard of that either. See, stand your ground is like a contradiction that's on the books in most states, even Louisiana. It contradicts self defense. Self defense. I gotta let you try to get away. I gotta try to get away from the conflict. Stand your ground. You can meet force with like force even outside your own property. So based on staying your ground, you coming at me at the, uh, like outside the club downtown and I feel threatened you walking up on me and I don't have a duty to like turn around and try to get away from it. I could just let loose on you gotcha. understand your ground. And and that's like a form of self-defense, but they don't call it self-defense. Only white people get it. So that that's that's literally what, what Trayvon Mars, uh, what Trayvon's killer walk away with was a stand your ground even though they tried it under self defense the jury asked for the instructions for stand your ground ground. and they felt Mm -hmm. like the dude that killed Trayvon stood his ground even though he wasn't at his house he wasn't feeling threatened you get what I'm saying but those are the types of games they play with these laws we're ignorant of them and so we'll really be out here trying to defend our home trying to feel trying to defend a family member or somebody putting their hands on your baby mama some dude she talking to and you really go in there trying to help but to the legal system you just a thug you know what I'm saying that done use the weapon on somebody they they not looking at the whole story you in the system and if that dude survive he in the system right that's crazy yeah I mean that's why incarceration is so high with black people we don't really have a recourse for protecting our community white people can walk around open carry you know what I'm saying? With assault rifles and things like that. Now, that's a fact. You get pulled over with a little nine in your car. What I done did, I done got pulled over with a with a legally registered 45 before. And had had the officer take my clip out the gun, ask me what I got the gun for. I used I used to be a staunch believer in Second Amendment rights till I realized that right isn't recognized with black people. True. You know, so in order for us to really arm up like we be talking about we need to do, um, you see what they did when the Black Panthers armed up. Ronald Reagan and the NRA actually bad California in taking away some of their gun rights to disarm the Black Panthers. They was cool with open carry till the Panthers started doing it. True. Right? So, you know, I say all this to say the importance of redistributing voting because the whole reason we got the 1965 Civil Rights Act or Voting Rights Act. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What King was really marching for was not for us to have 
these emotional conversations about black people and white people. What they were marching for was so that we could, was because um, during the redistricting process, this gerrymandering that I'm talking about, that was actually what the bill called out, mm-hmm. was that it's illegal to form racialized districts that segregate or that um, purposely discriminate against a minority gotcha. in terms of voting. So the 1965 uh, Voting Rights Act, that's actually what we're fighting for with this redistrict effort. That's the purpose of black people getting on buses, gathering together, going down to Baton Rouge towards the end of this, end of this month, supporting Amari, supporting Candace, supporting Black Voters Matter, supporting, uh, supporting uh, Black Voters Matter, supporting Power Coalition. The importance of that is what Dr. King marched for was that Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. that says you can't, you can't redraw the voting lines in a way that takes away Queensboro voice or Cedar Grove voice or Moortown voice. Gotcha. Right? Because when they take your voting power away, then you can't go vote for the legal right for you to be able to not get harassed by a police officer because you got your gun in the car. Gotcha. You get what I'm saying? That, Speaking heavy today. That take a lot more reading and talking than us just going and protesting, yelling at an elected official. You know what I'm saying? It's like that. People like... Because I got the shirt on today. I'm an activist too, but I, my activism just be different. I'd be like, okay, we can go protest. We can go argue with people. We can have four-hour discussions about the black family and black parents, but what's our action item? Gotcha. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, I got to see that same energy. Like, we're going to protest. Like, why not black people pack out the city council meeting? The school board meeting that ain't nobody yet. Yep. The commission meeting. And not just get there and argue with them, but, like, why don't we actually read the charter? actually read what they vote on, are we in favor of that or not? Do we even know what it means? True. Who we got smart in the group that can give us the cliff notes like I'm doing now? Gotcha. Yeah, it's true. Most time we're not, we not representing them. We're not coming. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, a lot of time it turned into a popularity contest. So, you know, I like we touched on, like, the rap culture and yeah. hip-hop earlier because I really feel like we got some untapped diamonds right there Yeah. because how we set these cultural trends as black people – you know what I mean? Yep. I feel like there's, I feel like I feel like we got everything that it takes in the black community, and I feel like we just not connecting the pieces, cause yep. that influence that hip hop got, it's amazing. I, yeah, I mean you could make it cool to vote. That's for fact. Wayne could make it cool to vote. Drake can make it cool to vote. All of them. Nicki Minaj can make it cool to vote. The last time they did it real strong when Obama was running for office. My president is black. Jeezy. You did. It was all facts. I mean, bruh. <laughs> it was all facts. Yeah, everybody was My president about. is black. I mean, that was that was that album Jeezy dropped. When Obama was running, that was crazy. Yeah. Diddy was a part of Vote or Die. Right. The whole shebang. So we seen what we can do. We can put a black man in the White House. But I think we kind of lost that energy and got complacent. Like yeah. we do a lot of time we had this one black superhero that we can worship and we'll rally behind them, but then we're like, the energy go away. I mm-hmm. think we got to kind of do like a Obama 2.0. And yeah. instead of just being so big on, we got to get this one cool black person elected. I think we need to do like Claude Anderson was talking about, Ice Cube, we need a black, like, agenda. Yeah. Ice Cube got a lot of criticism about that. And it went above a lot of people's head, but they ain't really, really go into the real reason on why he really put that together. Yeah, I think it became overly politicized. Um, and you know I'm a no party person I don't really like what Political parties do to Poor people Break that down Political parties make 
poor people think that if I pick the right side, just like Cowboys and Saints, right? Mm-hmm. If I pick the right side and my side win, then I'm good. Like if you're a Republican, Republican win, it don't matter how much money you got, if you actually know any elected officials, it don't matter if you know the system. If you just vote Republican, then Republicans, you know, you're going to get a raise at work the next week and your wife going to love you. You're going to hit the lottery. And that's not true. It's not true. And then Democrats, we black people vote like 99% Democrat. And we be thinking because you vote for a Democrat and the Democrat come to your fish fry, come to the club with you, come to your church, that when this Democrat win, if you vote Democrat, you support them, then as soon as they get in, like all you and your cousins going to get jobs, you're going to get a new car. You know, we just going to be bowling yeah. when the Democrats... And neither one of those things is true. The only people that win when Democrats and Republicans win are people that got enough money to write a check to their campaign. True. People that got enough money to wine and dine and hang out with them. True. Basically, the people that already have money are the people that benefit from Democrats and Republicans. I'm not saying don't vote for either because sometimes that's your only choice is a Democrat or Republican. But I'm saying it shouldn't be just somebody shouldn't be able to be like, Vote for me, you be like, why? Because I'm running Democrat. Yeah, it's not. But people come to black people with that a lot. I'm running Democrat, and you know Democrats for us, so I got y'all a vote, right? They haven't talked about what they're going to do about the schools, the streets. The, you know what I'm saying? They haven't yeah. given you any type of act, plan, any, they haven't promised you anything. All they told you is, I'm down with you and I'm one of you. Yeah. That's true, bro. Yeah, you pledge, you pledge this frat. I'm down with that frat too. You you go to this church over here. You know, you go to Morningstar. You go to Praise Red. You're like I, I go there. I bet the church with you too. Mm-hmm. And so we feel this familiarity with people. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's just like this popularity thing. We're not looking at what the context of what people are actually saying, what they're doing. We're just giving people props based on their popularity. Man, hey, bro, you talking spicy? We're going to switch it real quick. I want people to, because you do a lot of great things, bro. Talk about the makerspace. Talk about the impact you guys are doing with the makerspace, because a lot of people really don't understand the magnitude of what you're doing with the makerspace, bro. So please break that down for them. Well, it's cool, man. Thank, thanks for pointing it out. Like, I'm all about, like I said, we had these discussion action items. And so makerspace has been one of my action items where – I'm like, man, I know black people are real creative and people of all ethnic backgrounds. You know what I'm saying? I, I definitely love our people, but I do stuff for a lot of non-melanated people as well mm-hmm. and love them just as much. But I felt like people needed a creative outlet where I was like, what's something we could create where people don't necessarily have to be wealthy, already have money. But if they got an idea, like they want to start a podcast like this, we set up like a room in our space. And you know what I'm saying? We don't charge them an arm and leg because we we see three we're nonprofit. So, you know, we we reduce that cost. Or maybe we waive it for somebody on government assistance. We've done that with a lot of our membership. So we started out with an actual we, we created like an actual physical space, what's called a fab lab or fabrication laboratory, mm-hmm. where we got different sections inside the building, different rooms where you can create different types of things, like a couple rooms or like uh, soundproof where you can go in there and do some music recording or do a podcast or whatever but then we got something we go in there we got 3D printers a lot of people see type of stuff like that on TV but don't have access to it we actually provide people access to that mm-hmm. you don't have to be like a college graduate you don't have to have a lot of money to like come 
learn how to use a 3D printer with us or, you know, um, a 3D printer, you know, it'll mold things out of plastic. So if you got an idea for some type of invention, you just sit there, talk to your cousin about wouldn't it be cool if we had something like this. You know what I mean? Like you can actually build a prototype like an iLab. And so we try to create um, opportunities we can provide people access to that. Um, We do a lot of digital literacy training. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about the dangers of jobs being lost to automation. We talked about earlier before the show. Let's talk about that. So all this stuff... All the stuff that the factories, that the companies are doing, we pretty much are buying that equipment, software programs, Adobe, um, you know, AutoCAD, like, you know, all kind of uh, app development software. We get a hold of these tools that is usually cost prohibitive for people to get that a lot of these big companies get and use to make money. And then we turn into more like a um, an incubator. Mm-hmm. Like, how can we put this in the hands of maybe a low-income black business that couldn't afford, maybe they can't afford Autodesk, AutoCAD to do blueprints. Maybe they, maybe you can do real good uh, video editing, but you can't afford Adobe Premiere. Mm-hmm. And then we got computers with the license set up already. You can just come in like a recreation center, sign in and, you know what I'm saying, and get it going. Yeah, and when you get good at it, hopefully you can make you some money. We connect you to some resources and opportunities, um, show you how to contract your work. Uh, one thing that we train people on is we call it three-headed dragon. So, you know, with our development that we do with people that are income-constrained, you know, we have commit to, first of all, they volunteer about 10 hours to us if they can't afford our membership dues. Mm-hmm. They they uh, volunteer like 10 hours uh, to us like each month. Now, y'all hear this now. You can join yeah. Megaspace. It ain't even about the money. Yeah, it ain't even about the money. It's about the work ethic. So what we like to do is we like to get people that got potential and is willing to work. True. People that got potential and they're willing to work and they just need an opportunity. Mm, you keep rolling. Yeah, people that uh, are willing to work and they got potential and they just need an opportunity. Mm-hmm. We love working with people like that because, you know, me and my board members, you know, we've been everywhere in corporate America. We, we know a lot of people just like Shark Tank. The people yeah. on short, you know, we can connect people to those resources. I mean, and some stuff we can even show them how to do themselves. So W two job opportunities, we connect people to. We do letters of recommendation mm-hmm. on our letterhead, but then we also show people how to do ten ninety nine work. Sometimes we need people to do little graphics, graphic design for flyers. We might need somebody to do social media, yeah, and we can show them how to do something and cut them a check at the same time, you know, and keep our overhead low and help some of the people that are working in our program from within. But then there's, you know, there's the LLC or the the, the business owner lane where, you know, we teach how to license your business, prepare invoices, you know what I'm saying? Uh, we're showing people how to actually turn their hustle or their craft or their hobby to a real business. Into an actual business. Yeah. And it ain't got to be like a big million dollar business starting out. Like I say, we have the equipment we've already purchased that you have access to. So you take that off your overhead list. Now you don't have to go buy all this two, three thousand dollars worth of t-shirt equipment. We already have it here at the lab. Yeah. Gotcha. And so you come in and use it, make your shirts, make your money. Now you're making revenue, putting it in your business bank account before you even take on the overhead expenses of buying equipment, buying different things. You know what I'm saying? And so Y'all really give everybody the alley hoop. We give them a strong alley you. You know what I'm saying? Like yep. if they really want to do something. So it's not, you know, it's not for play. It's not like one of these um, 
it's different than a lot of traditional makerspace because a lot of those really turn into hangouts for people that already got money mm -hmm. to go play around with this equipment that I'm talking about. Gotcha. And because they don't really have this path for people that are income constrained, for people that don't make a lot of money or don't have money, it ends up being just a bunch of middle class people hanging out, playing with 3D printers and technology. And, you know, like nationally, there's less than like 5% black participation in, in uh, makerspace programs. Gotcha. We one of the only ones in the country that is both black led, like a black owned equivalent of a nonprofit. And we're, on a, we're one of the only ones in the country that serves as large a number of African-Americans per year that we do. Mm -hmm. Now, some of the things we do are beyond even just running like a makerspace or what's also called a fab lab, you know, with access to technology and tools. We also do one of the ways I like to teach people is like if they're not that into the whole makerspace fab lab idea, you know, you know me, I've led like disaster response efforts in Queensboro. Yeah. You know, I've done a lot of clothes drive, food drives over the years, stuff that I did. So I was in National Society of Black Engineers. I was in college. So, you know, we always have, like, during the pandemic, everybody was making masks or whatever, and we saw a lot of people were divided. So we started getting people together, paying them to make masks, and um, teaching people how to make the shields and the masks, cut them out with our equipment. And we donated, like, thousands of uh, pieces of PPE during the, um, during the pandemic. I ended up chairing a task committee for the mayor for the city of Shreveport, mm -hmm. trying to bring some of these different organizations and entities together gotcha. to see how we can make sure that we have enough PPE, sanitizer, things that we need, uh, kind of mitigate that COVID response. Gotcha. So we were doing it, but a lot of the people I was doing that with, I was pulling people from the hood that needed to learn, skills. you know, skills. Mm -hmm. And I got a manufacturing PPE, something that well-known companies are running out of. You get what I'm saying? And I'm putting that on people's resumes. Gotcha. And I'm writing a letter of support saying this person though is uh, you know, has done micro manufacturing and fabrication, you know, under our direct supervision and they operated this equipment. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So they there isn't they're not just getting a handout, they're getting a hand up. They're like ahead of the game. Exactly. You're learning how to do something that college graduates don't know how to do. Right? Um, we started donating computers. A lot of people, you know, cattle schools would run out of computers and you had a lot of people at the house, they kid, you know, the schools closed down and they didn't have a computer for their kid. So we started getting computers that people would throw out a lot of times. Fix them up. Fix them up, refurbish them, get them like brand new, and we donate those computers up, any family with a documented financial need. So food stamps, financial aid and college on like with like a fee sheet. Yeah. You know, any type of financial need. We donated, like, to this date, I think we're over, like, 300 computers. That's amazing. 90% of, of them have gone to black women. And I say about, like, 80% of our volunteers that have helped us refurbish those computers have been low to moderate income people themselves. Gotcha. So you are you helping. putting on for the community, bro. Right, right. But this is the key. Like, I'm a Pan-Africanist. Everything I do nonprofit-wise, I hate to even call it a charity sometimes because what I do is my volunteers aren't just like middle-class wealthy people coming to help these, you know, poor people that can't do anything for themselves. I don't play around with that narrative. Gotcha. I, my volunteers come from the hood. Gotcha. So you are helping you. So it's important. Like when people come get, people come to pick up a computer, you're looking at a black man from the hood where you from fixing this situation from you. You're not going to some sweet white people mm -hmm. that's saving you. I think too many of us get that in our head 
and it makes us feel a type of way towards other black people when we come up because we be thinking that opportunities only come from like white people you know yeah. what I'm saying we don't create those opportunities for ourselves enough Man, so I try to put my spicy. money where my mouth is you talking spicy today brother uh, you talking spicy I mean this is something that I know that you do this is yeah. something that I know that Orlando's does despite criticism from some of our own people people yeah. not looking at the whole process yeah. they not looking at how 